A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the political party. Today's guest is Ian Blackford, the former leader of the SNP in Westminster, someone who's been such a prominent figure in the last five years of British politics. Only been an MP since 2015. I mean, this is to so many of the guests that I've had on in the last few years that the rate at which people go from being elected to prominent front bench positions. I mean, Keir Starmer is a really good example of that as well. Um, is incredible. So before I come on to uh, Ian in more detail, my next guest at the political party is Keir Starmer on Monday the 20th of February. Tickets for that have sold out. My guest after that on Monday the 6th of March is Eddie Izzard, um, someone who, as you can imagine, growing up and getting into comedy in the 90s was a huge hero of mine. Dressed to Kill, I still think is one of the greatest stand-up... They get called specials now, but then they were just called videos um, of all time. And, of course, a prominent Labour campaigner. On Monday the 20th of March, my guest is Channel 4 News's Krishnan Guru Murthy, an absolute legend. On Monday the 3rd of April, my guest is the former leader of the Scottish Conservatives, Ruth Davidson. So there's next four shows, Keir Starmer, Eddie is a... Krishnan Guru Murthy, Ruth Davidson, what a phenomenal political mix and life mix and just different people at different stages of their career and different roles and different parts of politics. Such a phenomenal lineup. Tickets for all those shows are available at nymaxtheatres.com, but I've put a link in the blurb where you can just click on it and buy tickets. The Keir Starmer one, as I say, is sold out already. Um, and guests for future shows are about to be announced as well. Um, so today's guest, Ian Blackford, former leader of the SNP in Westminster, no longer... Uh, of course, uh, and, we, and we talk about that and just about his career trajectory, but of course, all the things that are going on at the moment in Scottish politics. So um, the case for a second referendum in a context where the Supreme Court uh, has reached its ruling, um, the future of the SNP, the future of Nicola Sturgeon as First Minister, his relationship with her, and of course, uh, self-ID, the Gender Recognition Act and the, and the political fallout around all of that. So there's a whole load of stuff in here, as well as just the inside story of, obviously, during um, Ian Blackford's time as leader of uh, the SNP in Westminster, there are a couple of major flashpoints with different speakers, with John Burke and with Lindsay Hoyle, about walkouts or getting thrown out or um, what the rules of the House of Commons were. And obviously, that was just such a tumultuous time through the Theresa May and Boris Johnson uh, premierships. And also, just the nature of finding out information, relationships with different prime ministers. And there's really good behind the scenes stuff about who the people are that you can work with across party lines and, and just the way that different prime ministers treat the role regarding how you would treat a party like the SNP in, in the House of Commons. So there's really good background and, and behind the scenes stuff and um, a lot of contemporary stuff as well. So um, as always, when it's live at the Duchess Theatre, um, we begin uh, with a bit of stand up about the fortnight in politics and then enjoy uh, an hour with Ian Blackford. Prime Minister's Questions, by the way, has become blood sport now. It's so one-sided, it's absolutely incredible. But there's a, a, a great moment at Prime Minister's Questions last Wednesday. And it's really funny, where you only get this in the House of Commons, where they'll be very sombre at the start. They'll pay tribute to someone who's died or be the anniversary of a tragedy. And then it's, at what point do they stop being all solemn and going, yeah, 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 and get back into being political again? And there's a really, <laughs> just incredible TV, where they're all paying tribute to Mark Drakeford, the first, uh, first Minister of Wales, whose wife sadly passed away, and Rishi Sunak pays tribute, 
then Keir Starmer gets up. I want to associate myself with the words of the Prime Minister. And I know that it will mean so much to the First Minister of Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he's like, well, now I've got to be political now. And gone the hit tack. He goes, when he finally emerged from hibernation over the weekend, did he? Uh, can he tell the House whether the Chancellor had actually told him before he was appointed he was being investigated by Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs? Now, I know that obviously at some point you have to go from the solemn thing to the political bit, but it is only in Parliament could you do that. Like, in real life, you could never, in one sentence, go, Dave, yeah, really sorry about your dad, mate. Yeah, I, ho I hope he pulls through. No, he's a good man. He was always nice to me growing up. Can I just ask you one question? Why are you such a dick? <laughs> no, no. Answer the question. <laughs> so surreal that only in that arena do we let him behave like that. But he, he asks... Uh, he asks... Um, he asks uh, uh, Rishi, obviously, about the bullying allegations... Um, against uh, Dominic Raab. And this is amazing, but you can watch it back on the iPlayer. <laughs> Dominic Raab is sat next to, to Rishi Sunak. And Keir Starmer's there going, the Deputy Prime Minister <laughs> is facing 24 counts of bullying. And it cuts to Dominic Raab, and you see him going, yeah, yeah. So I'm like, you're like, no, don't, like, heckle back. Why is that the worst way to disprove you're a bully is to sort of go, oh, fuck yourself, yeah. <laughs> The other story, of course, uh, about Keir Starmer. Have you seen this whole thing about Rod Stewart? Rod Stewart, who apparently has always voted Conservative, you know the famous pop star Rod Stewart, rings up Sky News to tell them live on air that he thinks Labour should have a go next time. And if you watch the clip-ons, they cover this like it's a global breaking news story. <laughs> breaking news now. Rod Stewart joins us on Sky News. And he's only on the phone. He's not even, there. He's not even gone in to tell him. Uh, Rod Stewart joins us now. Rod Stewart, you've been a lifelong Conservative. He's going, yeah, well, you know, I've always voted Conservative, but I think Labour should ever go now. And what do you make of the Tories' hand? You're like, you cannot do this. Like, it's, we're joined now by Engelbert Humperdinck, who says that a lot of sub-postmasters are simply being swamped. You can't allow pop stars just onto the news and not like, uncritically go... Okay, he's Rod Stewart. It's a bit of a laugh. He's not like a world leader. I mean, what next? Liam Gallagher joins us now uh, to talk about health service reform. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Gallagher, I understand you were never a fan of clinical commissioning groups. No, not for me. You know what I, mean? <laughs> I don't give a fuck who runs it. Give me any fucking medicine, you know what I mean? That's all I give a fuck about. Keir Starmer said, he said, uh, well, look, I, of course, I, 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 this is it. Rod Stewart actually, he's so distressed at the state of the NHS in England that he's offered to pay for dialysis machines. So he goes, oh, look, I'm happy to take Rod up on this. <laughs> I, I can't believe what's all about Rod Stewart, like, like he's Bill Gates, do you know what I mean? Like, he's got a few quid, but like, what is Rod Stewart going to do for the NHS? Look, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to take Rod up on his uh, offer to fund parts of our national house. How about you go and meet him and have a sing-along? And you think, oh, my God. Keir Starmer duetting with... I mean, Keir Starmer singing any song would become needlessly bureaucratic. But Wake up, Maggie, I've got something to say to you. The NHS is on its knees. <laughs> and it's in vital need of a bi-funded model. Yes, some from the state, but for the private sector as well. I am sailing. I am sailing. <laughs> across the water, wearing the appropriate safety commitment as laid down in international maritime law. <laughs> if you like my body and you think I'm sexy, please approach me in an appropriate way or I'll report you to the Metropolitan Police. <laughs> Please. 
Thank you very much. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, and what a special guest. For a number of reasons, I've interviewed um, leading members of the SNP before. Not for a while in London. Um, my last guest from the SNP was Joanna Cherry at the Edinburgh Festival. In London, it's been years since I interviewed uh, a leading member of the SNP, and that is uh, why tonight is so special. But, but tonight's guest is someone who really became such a leading fixture of Scottish and British politics very quickly. An MP since 2015, he became leader of the SNP Westminster Group in 2017, and really, in a way that SNP leaders have in recent years, really dominated Prime Minister's questions and our parliamentary proceedings, holding four different Prime Ministers to account. He's got a new role now, working alongside the First Minister to make the case for independence. He is a huge star of Scottish and British politics. Please give a huge welcome to Ian Blackford! (laughs) Ian, thank you very much. Welcome. And a dram as well. Yeah, I've got your whiskey. What more could anybody... It's Langeva. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what sort of whiskey that is. Does it taste all right? It tastes fine. That is good fine. London whiskey. <laughs> from, made from clear Thames water. Well, there you are. There's no such thing as bad whiskey. Well, just... do you know what? Aren't some places in the Lake District trying to make it? And you just think, mm-hmm. really, it can only be Scotland or Japan. Scotland, Japan. Island, Japan, and then everywhere else is... Actually, I do remember being in Delhi many years ago with my, with my wife. It was a new hotel, and the sommelier asked if I knew anything about whiskey, and I said, well, I'd, just, I'd drink it from time to time. But he asked if I would then give him, give him my thoughts on all the Japanese whiskies that they had. So he lined them up in a row. <laughs> Halfway through it, my wife said, I want to go to bed. I said, not now, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> Can't even take your wife on a stag do. Yeah. <laughs> my God. Sounds like a great night. Uh, but Ian, you've been such a major player in British politics for the last few years. And that, that happened quite quickly. You become an MP in 2015, and obviously it's testament to how quickly Scottish politics and British politics was moving. You become the leader in 2017, and then you're thrust right into yeah. the crucible of Parliament. But even that actually was, was a funny story, because um, I remember the week of the election, one of my, one of my colleagues, Ailey Whiteford, she was the MP for Banff and Buck, and she lost her seat. Um, I was actually staying with one of my councillors in Wester Ross. I've got this huge constituency. And she phoned me and said, Angus isn't going to get back in. You should be the, the next leader. And I phoned my wife and said, she's got to be kidding. Uh, this doesn't make any sense at all. And, of course, that weekend, conversations started happening. But what happened, Matt? Stuart MacDonald, who you know very well, he appointed himself as my campaign manager and announced to the Daily Record that I was standing as SNP leader. <laughs> so I had, I had no choice, but it was, it, was, it was Stuart's fault. You had nine Japanese whiskies in at that point. Well, indeed. <laughs> it was news to you. But it must have been... Did it feel daunting to go from, effectively a new MP in 2015 to then being one of the key players at Prime Minister's Questions just two years I, later? I, I, I guess, in, in, in a way, it did, because being elected as part of the 56 in 2015, there was rather a lot of us. I was a spokesperson. I was the, the pension spokesperson. I'm not talking about pensions unless you really want to probably send a lot of people to sleep. But, so I wasn't exactly on the, on the front line, if you want to put it that way. So to go from that position to, to becoming the leader, and it was a... A baptism of fire, and if I'm really honest, I don't think I got it quite right the first couple of weeks at Prime Minister's Questions. You, you have to begin to get to know how to do it and how to how to land the punches. But it was, um, you know, it was a fantastic opportunity. It was a real privilege to do it and to have to have that voice to speak for constituents. And you know, I was blessed that so many people throughout Scotland, throughout the UK, that wrote emails to us saying how pleased they were that we were taking. Theresa May, Boris Johnson, Liz Trust, <laughs> to, to task on a, on a weekly basis. But no, it was, um, 
you were, you were aware that you, you were in a privileged position being given that time in the middle of the day on a Wednesday to, to be the voice of hope for, for, for so many people and everything that we've faced. It's been, gosh, it's been one crisis after another, hasn't it? That's indeed. Um, you got a question in this week at Promises Questions and there was a lovely warm reception that you got. I mean, is it, is it, is it like, um, I think William Hague, I remember him saying once, you know, I recommend retirement to every member of this house. <laughs> but once you go, everyone goes, oh, we really like you now. He, yeah, yeah, it was kind of bizarre because they used to shout and scream at me every week and then all of a sudden it's, hooray, he's back. <laughs> uh, maybe I should come back. <laughs> but does it, is it, I mean, you must have such a, psychologically strange relationship with I mean I think a lot of MPs do with the House of Commons they would change a lot about it people on left right and centre but obviously fundamentally you think you don't want to be there really but in the meantime you are there and you must develop an affection for some of it yeah look of course um I mean, I want Scotland to be independent. I want, I want us what? to be out of, I don't know, shop corner, <laughs> hold the front page. I, I want us to be out of that place. But I, I'd always say to, to, to colleagues and everybody back home, don't disrespect the place. You've been sent there as a Member of Parliament to represent constituents. Do your job. It's a place of work, fundamentally. And um, by goodness, every MP does surgeries uh, around the place. I do surgeries in 32 places. I've got the... The biggest constituency by far is 12,000 square kilometres. It's a, quite a size. And, you know, it can be quite moving when you have surgeries with people because quite often they can come to you and they're absolutely at the end of their terror. And, and the fact that you're the MP, it doesn't matter who you are. It's not about you. It's about the office that you hold. But you're there to try and see if you can do something for them. Um, so you should, you should never forget that responsibility that you've got. But it's a beautiful grand building as well. Is there part of you at the back of your mind that goes, oh, man, if we get independence... I miss the, the leather seats and the, the, the stone arches compared to, you know... Well, Hollywood's got its, its plus points and it's modern and everything. It's a modern, I know. And there obviously are issues with the building. I'll tell you what we could do, because I think London does need a new parliament. We can maybe take it back up the road and we'll turn it into a museum. <laughs> That's a great idea. Yes. We get to sit on it then. You know, I'm sure people here have been on the side of House of Commons. You're not allowed to sit. No, I know, which is, yeah, which is incredible. What I'm there for? I want to sit, I want to touch the thing, you know. Yeah. yeah. Maybe That's more of a reflection of me. They're a bit precious. And don't take pictures. I know the rules, but anyway, I get that it's a security thing. But then, during Promises Question, then, so maybe the, the first couple of weeks takes a bit of getting used to. Hmm. And then, you know, would you relish it? I mean, it must be, the adrenaline must be incredible when you get on your feet in that place. Yeah, but you know that, in, in my case, I was always coming after the leader of the opposition, so Jeremy Corbyn, Keir Starmer. Um, you, you have to try and, you need to be a bit edgy. You have to try and get into the mix because you want you want taken up by the the media. So we did spend quite a bit of time thinking about what we wanted to do. And I always, you know, when I started, uh, the idealistic view that one week you would cover a Scottish issue, the next week UK, the next week international. You soon found out that wasn't going to happen because it was Brexit, it was COVID, it was Boris. <laughs> and, and if you and if you didn't be in that space, then the media you met would think that we're, we were absolutely off our heads. So we had to, we had to be in that space. Um, and of the four Prime Ministers that you raised, <laughs> Theresa May, Boris Johnson, Liz Trust, Rishi Sunak, who did you find the most formidable? The most formidable? Gosh. I, I, you know... <laughs> yeah, I probably would say Boris, because we, we both knew that we had to try and land one on each other. Um, I mean, I think he's an absolutely... A despicable character, I think, is an enormous damage. And by the way, this idea that we were friends, can I just scotch that? That's absolutely not true. Um, but I, I recognise the personality that he was. And you, you had to try and 
beat him at his, at his own game. So I had, a, I had a respect for that. In terms of a human being, the one that was more of a human being was actually Theresa May. She was completely wooden, she was frozen, she was stuck. But she, she did treat people with respect. Um, a lot of things were going on at that time. Of course, we had, if you remember, the Salisbury attack, and she always made sure that opposition leaders were consulted what was going on, the attacks that took place in Syria. So there was respect for the office that she held and the way that she had to interact with other people. Boris actually saw everybody as the enemy. Um, so there was no, no interaction at all. And, and actually, if I think about the last year, we're coming up to the year anniversary of the, sadly, of the war in Ukraine. Um, but we weren't getting any information from Number 10, but Ben Wallace has gone above and beyond, and he's made sure that Keir Starmer, myself, Ed Davey, uh, were getting briefings, intelligence briefings, every two weeks. So at least we had that oxygen of knowing what was, what was going on. But the disrespect from Boris was quite stunning, and I think that tells you everything that you need to know about the man. And would you ever raise that with him privately? Would you say, Prime Minister, you need to keep us more in the loop? Yeah, I did. It actually used to really annoy me. Um, and I, I did raise it with him, but it was a complete waste of time. And actually, all you were going to do was just actually get yourself frustrated. So you just had to accept it. Even to the extent he wouldn't even tell you when he was coming to the, the house to, to make a statement. Uh, and I remember once he, he made them... Um, he responded to the, the, the cuts to overseas aid, which for me was a really important thing. But he didn't even have the grace to tell us he was coming to do it. He didn't tell the speaker. Just at the last minute, he appeared to make the statement. And actually, a journalist said to me, why aren't you in the chamber? What do you mean, why am I in the chamber? Well, Boris is speaking. But he didn't even have the grace to tell us. That's pretty shocking. Actually, show some, show some decency, some respect. And behind closed doors, would he, would he pretend to say, hey, look, I, I know we have had differences, but, you know, you know I've, got to, I've got to go out there and you know, get things done, and, uh, you know, I, I have huge respect for what you're doing. Was, was there ever any consolation behind the scenes? No, no. And actually, one of the worst things, it might, it might sound small, Matt, but he came to Scotland on holiday. He actually came to That's right. He came, he came, came up to Applecross. And... Um, the story broke in, in, in the Daily Mail, and I got a phone call from a journalist saying, number 10 are blaming you, you did it. <laughs> well, actually, I didn't. But, um, so, and actually, that was quite serious, because I was then getting threats and an awful lot of abuse on, on the basis of that. And, and well, that you'd leaked his holiday plans. I'd leaked his holiday plans. So what then happened was, the, the photographer that, that, that did it, uh, who's, who's a great guy, a guy called Peter Jolly, I didn't know him particularly well at that point, he actually went to the press and said, Ian wasn't my source. And the Speaker said to me, raise this in the House of Commons, make a point of order, and get him to, to correct the story that he had put out that, that you were responsible for. He's threatened your security. What did the bull Boris do? He stood up and said, but I still think it was you. <laughs> <laughs> He's unhinged. <laughs> and, I mean, it's your constituency. Did he encounter any locals? Did they say to you, oh, we have Boris Johnson here? Well, the funny, you know, the funny thing about that is that he had rented a, a house and he put um, a tent up in the next field. And, and what I'm led to believe is all his security personnel were in the house, and he was in the tent. The only thing, the only thing he hadn't done was he hadn't realised that that was another crofter's field, and he hadn't asked for permission. So I don't think, I don't think the crofter was actually too pleased. So he was trespassing. <laughs> <laughs> they broke the law. So then... That period when he prorogues Parliament, I mean, it, so much has happened in the last few years. It's oh, really hard, you know, thinking of, like, the, the Theresa May and all the meaningful votes and all that, when he couldn't get a vote through on the floor of the House of Commons and all, everything that was going on there. And then Boris Johnson comes in and prorogues Parliament, well, lies to the can Queen. I, can I, I'll tell you a funny story about that, actually, as, as well, Matt, for me. 
we'd had um, opposition MPs had met in Church House in London just before prorogation. So I'd flown back up to Scotland. My journey home is quite a long one. I live three and a half hours away from, from an airport. And as I'm driving back late at night, um, a journalist phoned me from the BBC and said, have you heard about a meeting of the Privy Council that's taking place in Balmoral tomorrow? And I told him, no, 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 that can't, that can't possibly be true because the Privy Council meets 10 months of the year. It doesn't meet in August. The Queen's on holiday. Um, and it, it, it just gone two o'clock in the morning. My phone pings. It was a Labour MP, Stephen Doughty. Ian, are you still up? So I phoned him. I said, Stephen, I'm not home yet. Yeah. And um, he said, there's a Privy Council meeting taking place tomorrow at Balmoral. I've had a tip off from number 10. So uh, your mind's racing. And I, I, I get in the house. I woke up my wife. And... Um, <laughs> Oh, why She's not? Sleeping off the <laughs> not? But I said, I said to her, I have to phone Nicola. So I phoned Nicola, and the phone rang out. I wasn't having that. <laughs> so I phoned her again, and, and, and Nicola's wife, Peter, tells the story quite well. She says, it's Ian. It must be something important if he's phoning you this time in the morning. So I told her the story, and she didn't believe me. Uh, fine. And because your mind's racing, I'm not thinking, I'm a privy councillor. Can I go to Balmoral? Have I got, can I actually turn up at the, the Privy Council meeting? So you didn't really get back to sleep, and I, I kind of got up again, and it's just gone six o'clock in the morning, and the phone rings. It's Nicola. <laughs> so I pick it up on the first ring, and she says, you're right. I says, I know I'm right. But she only told me later, she said, the reason I phoned you at six o'clock in the morning is I'm sure you would have been asleep. I thought I would get my own back on you, and you answered it the first ring. <laughs> <laughs> what, what's your relationship? By the way, I couldn't, I couldn't get into Balmoral. They wouldn't let me in. I did try. <laughs> oh, that's a good point, actually. So when he's calling the Privy Council... Yeah. Presumably that Privy Council meeting is just for the government Privy yeah, Council. Right. Yeah. Not, not everyone else. So the, oh, the other thing I did do, by the way, because I phoned up somebody, I think, I need to get TV cameras there. So I phoned up a, an ex-head of news at the BBC. He's no longer the BBC. He's elsewhere. And I said, right, right now, you need to get cameras to Aberdeen Airport and to Balmoral. And that's, that's how the, the pictures got out, because we made sure there were, there were cameras there of Jacob Rees-Mogg and Alistair Jack arriving for this Privy Council meeting. So. It was incredible drama, that. So yeah. then, what's your relationship... Or more to the point, when you were SNP Westminster leader, what was your relationship with Nicola Sturgeon in terms of how much autonomy you had to do exactly what you wanted and... and well, the division of labour. I've made, I've made no secret of the fact that, that Nick and I are, are good friends. She is, she is the leader. She, I, I call her the boss, <laughs> if, I'm a, if I'm allowed to do that. I've got two bosses. I've got my wife, Anne Nicola, <laughs> uh, just in case Anna's listening as well. But um, no, it's a, no we've, had a, we've had a long relationship. In fact, I remember when I stood as the, the SNP candidate in Paisley in the by-election, I'll be back in 1997, Nicola was my minder. So we go back a long way. I've known her all her adult life. And um, I think her achievements as, as First Minister have been remarkable, the way that she led us through COVID. So I, I, I remain a very big supporter. But when I became leader, and we, no two weeks are ever the same, but there are times we would speak a lot, particularly going through Brexit. But she always encouraged me to make the decisions as leader of the Westminster Group. It was a, it was a team that worked together. And we still work together. And is it, I mean, it must be difficult, just in terms of party and political management, to have such a huge cohort of you in Westminster so visible and so effective at generating noise and getting publicity and holding Prime Minister's cap. And obviously, a period of time where, when you had Corbyn as the leader of the Labour Party, yourself and Angus Robertson mm. really were holding the Prime Minister's account in a far better way than the official opposition were. And then you've got uh, the real leader of the party is up the other end of the island 
with her own job to do, running Scotland and all the political management that goes with that, it must be quite tricky to just make sure every, everyone's on side. No, 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 actually it's not. I mean, but, I mean, the way I would look upon it is that she was leading a, a government. She was running a country. Um, I was the leader of the SNP group of Westminster. I often describes ourselves as the Support Act. And that's, that's what we... Yeah, don't, <laughs> that's, that's exactly what we were. So, no, there was never any, any difficulty with, with, with that at all. But... There's, there is mutual respect between, between the two of us and her, and her team. But inevitably, I guess, in any organisation, when you've got effectively two separate officers, you have people in one going, oh, they don't get it, man. They, they don't know what it's like down here. They, you know, in any work... You know, I remember working in pubs where the kitchen staff would think the bar staff didn't understand how hard it was and vice versa. There must be an element where you had some MPs going, oh, what's... Or, or just the sort of suspicion that creeps in to organisations when they go, oh, well, Nicola's saying yeah. this, but, you know, I've got to come down here and do this. Yeah, I mean, you're always going to get a situation. That, I mean, when I had my staff at Westminster, the First Minister has her staff in government. We work together seamlessly. I mean, you wouldn't, you're not going to share everything that's going on with, with every member of Parliament. So, of course, you're going, to get a, you're going to get a suspicion about what's going on. That's, that's natural. That's part, of, that's part of everyday life. Everybody wants to be on the front line. Everybody wants to have a piece of the action. So, no, I understand it's, that. It's probably quite a boring management question, but would you have to make sure that, like, your backbenchers would get FaceTime with Nicola over Zoom or stuff like that? Was there, was there a sort of effort to make sure that she was connected to... Yeah, I mean, she, she, the front she, she would come down from time to time and, and come into Westminster group meetings. But I think, you know, I would say to colleagues, remember the role that she's playing. She is, she is First Minister. I mean, it's been the last few years, COVID and everything else, it's been, it's been pretty tough. Um, but whether it was Nicola, whether it was John Swinney, Mike Russell, other ministers, ministers would come down on a, on a regular basis. And then it, it promised a question, I sort of alluded to it there. You, you're holding four Prime Ministers to account in very quick succession. You overlap the Corbyn and then Starmer era, and obviously the Labour Party's in a different position now, electorally, than perhaps it was for the last two general elections. But certainly on the floor of the House of Commons, it was a huge opportunity for you to, in a way, have Corbyn leading the Labour Party. Yeah, and, you know, there's obviously a lot of chat about Corbyn and what he did and all the rest of it, and obviously he failed spectacularly as a Labour leader in the 2019 election. If, if, I, if, if I strip out Jeremy as a politician and Jeremy as an individual, actually, I would have lots of meetings where he and I would be sitting like this. And, and actually, more often than not, we would talk about football. And he would talk about his allotments, and I would talk about crofting. But um, we, we got on very well, as was the case with John McDonnell. Um, but I mean, he's, that obviously came to a very... Very sharp end. It was actually, actually, it was quite interesting on, on the night of the election in 2019 because we knew that we'd done very well in Scotland. We, we, we didn't know how well. Um, and we didn't have that much visibility of what was happening in, in, in England. So um, I'm sitting having a bite to eat with my wife and I'm trying to think, right, what am I doing tomorrow? Am I, am I going to Edinburgh? Am I going to, am I going to be with Nicola? Am I having to go down to, to Westminster? Are Labour going to be the largest party? In which case I have to come and see Jeremy. So um, I phoned up Seamus Milne <laughs> and uh, said, right, Seamus, if, if Labour are the largest party, um, shall we meet tomorrow, uh, myself and Jeremy? And he kind of said to me, Ian, don't waste your time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> don't rush down. 
uh, and, and of course that was fine and I'm, it's easy to you know, tell the story tonight but that actually ended up in the front page of The Guardian because Seamus told The Guardian and I said, to, I said to Jeremy I said what earth was he playing at and he kind of shrugged his shoulders and said well you know Seamus once a journalist always a journalist <laughs> <laughs> and then is your relationship with Keir Starmer as cordial as it was with yeah we get, we, we, we get on fine I mean obviously we, we worked together over a, a number of years we did that when he was in the the Labour front bench over over Brexit, so yeah, we have a we have a we have a decent personal relationship. I try and get on with with most people, to be with the exception of Boris, uh, <laughs> uh, in the in the House of Commons. And what's your view of where Labour are now? Do you think? Oh, hang on a minute, they're sorting their act out. They present a threat to us in Scotland. A threat. <laughs> <laughs> More of a threat. Where did you get that? <laughs> is it a marginally increased threat? So, look, I think, I think where we are, um, the, the, mood of, the mood of the UK is that people want change. Um, I, I cannot see a situation that Starmer is not going to be in a good position going into, into that election. But that's an interesting dynamic, because if people are expressing in the opinion polls they want change, well, we can actually trump what Starmer is saying, because the change that we offer in Scotland is, is independent. So I will always uh, respect uh, Labour as, a, as an opposition party. I was a Labour Party member myself once in the, in the dim and distant past. But I, I look forward to making the appeal to people in Scotland about what kind of future that we can deliver with independence. One that's greener, one that's fairer, but one that's also be able to deliver sustainable economic growth as well. So I welcome the challenge. Do you feel like, um, there was definitely a period of time after the 2014 referendum and then 2015 election when you get the 56, mm -hmm. where independence was like the number one thing everyone was talking about. Like across the UK in terms of a political issue, pre-Brexit mm -hmm. it was the thing. And it felt like there was sort of momentum and energy behind it. And then obviously Brexit happened and the polling sort of fluctuates a bit. Yeah. It feels like it's slightly, mm. and I'm trying to be as dispassionate as possible, it feels like because of COVID and, and everything else, it feels like it's just slightly waned in, in terms of how interested people are in talking about it. Yeah. Is, is that an issue, do you think? No, but I think, you know, when, when I think back to 2014, and I don't know how many people in, in, in the audience or how many people will be listening to your podcast would have been up in Scotland at the time, but by goodness, there was a tremendous excitement in, in, in the air. I spent most of my time in the, the West Highlands. We had a Yes shop in the main street in, in Portree and Wentworth Street, round the corner from the local high school. And, you know, the thing that I probably enjoyed more than most, Matt, were the number of young people that came into the shop, regardless of their opinion. Shoplifted. Shop yes, shortly, yeah. Uh, they were pinching our leaflets. <laughs> but, you know, regardless of their opinion, they, they were engaged in that debate. Yes. And it was just fantastic just to see, to see that energy. Um, and, and then, of course, we had the tremendous rise in membership of the SNP that, that happened immediately after that. But I think if, if I look at the period, if I take the period from 2011 when the SNP became majority government in, in Scotland through till now, so independence has been in the mix to some extent. But for most of that time, the debate's been about process. How are you going to get a referendum? Now... It's important, but I don't, know, I don't know about the rest of you, but it's pretty boring, actually. I think it's going to change your opinion whether you're voting for Scottish independence or not. But the thing that we need to do is have a debate about what kind of country. And that's the bit that, that will move the, the dial and create the excitement. That's the bit that we, that we need to have, and there's an awful lot to change. You know, people often ask me why, why I support independence, but there's a, there's a, there's a sadness when I, when I look at Scotland. And there's a book by a chap called... Anderson from Aberdeen University called Scotland's Populations 
not sure which is populations rather than population, but anyway, the serious point is that he paints a picture that Scotland's population on a relative basis in the UK has declined every decade since 1850. So something's gone wrong. It's not about blaming anybody, that's just a harsh reality. And I want to change that. I want to turn that around. I want Scotland to be an exciting place, a dynamic place, one where there's hope for people. And you're all welcome to come and join us, by the way. <laughs> come, come and be part. You come and join us, Matt. Be part of Scotland's story. Oh, I love Scotland. I, I will probably end up living there. Well, there you are. It's, it's a wonderful yeah. place, but I don't want to have to go through security at the border. You would. <laughs> <laughs> well, because I'll be given immunity. You'll be given immunity. Immunity? Do we want to give you immunity? No, but, but remember there's a common travel area across across the UK and Ireland as well, and that'll stay come what may. But, you know, it is a serious point because we want to make Scotland work, so we need to attract talent. Oh, you don't want me. <laughs> <laughs> I can put you in touch with my talented friends there, if you like. Um, would there be any... Let's say it eventually happens. I, I remember John Swinney saying to me that on Brexit night, actually, he realised how no voters would have felt had your referendum gone the other way, that there was that sense of loss that yeah. he hadn't previously appreciated. Would there be anything you would miss about UK membership? Let me... So I, I think... I'll, I'll answer that, but I think there's another point, and, and let's just be honest as well. When you look at the polling, um, there's a kind of big tranche of those that want independence, a big tranche of those that are unionists, and you've got those in the middle. Those are the ones that will determine the result. And I will you know, concede that on both sides, things have hardened up over the course of the last few years. I want to make sure when we're having a debate about independence that it's for everybody and that we extend that hand of friendship, because if Scotland does become independent, as I believe it will, then we need everybody pulling together. And I don't want the divisions that we've had in the UK over Brexit. And I'm not saying that we've got all the answers. I'll put out the thesis about how we're going to change the economy. But it needs everybody to participate in that um, and see what we can build, build together. What was the other bit of your question? Was the... it, it was about what you'd miss. What I'd miss. There is, you know, one of the things I think will happen is that we would have a very strong social union between, between the two countries. I love England. I lived in England. My name is an English name, for goodness sake. <laughs> so um, we, will, we will remain the best of friends and be able to celebrate that mutual respect of being independent countries. Beating us at rugby. Well... <laughs> Can we get to keep the Calcutta Cup? Do you know what? Because I'm a football fan, I don't mind when you win at rugby. <laughs> like, you can have that. It was a great, it was, I, don't know, I don't know if anybody, <laughs> people were watching it, but it was a great game on Saturday. Do you know what? I'm, I am, I'm making the efforts to try and get into rugby, but I think I'll end up supporting Ireland. Because right. my dad's Irish. I think there's something about England rugby that makes me like, would vote for independence on the yeah. back of it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> when I see people at Twicken, I'm like, give me a vote in the independence <laughs> referendum now. <laughs> Well, Saturday was a special I'm day. I'm sure there are lovely rugby fans. Saturday was a special day because Scotland won again at, uh, at Twickenham. And Hibs, Hibs beat St Mirren away from home. The first defeat St Mirren's had since, uh, since the first game of the season. So my football club did well on Saturday as well. It was a good day. Well, that's a good day. So then when you talk about you know, wanting it to be a debate for everyone, I think it's fair to say that it, people don't feel that it has been. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, you know, people say, I want it to be friendly, but actually people have fallen in, as they do on every argument, like debates, uh, Brexit, whatever. How then do you change that culture? Because people on both sides say that, and then actually, uh, I've never really seen that I think, change. I think we've got to show leadership. I mean, I've certainly said to those on the Tory side and, and the Labour side in the House of Commons, when this debate happens, let's go around the country together. Um, Maybe surprisingly, a lot of us actually do get on from time to time. And I think, I think we've got to 
We've got a duty to the public to treat them as, as adults, and let's actually explore the issues. I'm going to go off and, and write a green industrial strategy for Scotland, which I'll publish in June. I'm going to be working with some people on that. And I want to have that honest debate about how we change things. How do we deliver sustainable economic growth? How do we, how do we make sure that we unlock the potential in green energy? And let's actually have, let's have that, that debate, because that's what's important to folks. I mean, you look at the UK. We've had no growth since the financial crisis. People are really struggling. People are paying the price for that. People are actually striking now to get a decent wage. So we need to have a proper discussion about the things that really matter. So this is your, your new role? That's part of a new role, yep. And the other part? Well, I'm the, the First Minister's business ambassador. <laughs> I, I'm not sure what that means either. Well, but no, I, sounds good. It <laughs> sounds good. So, no, I've got a role going out and speaking to businesses, but the first thing I'm going to do is publish this paper in June with a couple of other people. I'll announce it publicly who I'm going to be working with over the next couple of weeks. But let's think about how we can change things for the better. Let, let's take green energy as an example. We are a, a windy place in Scotland, as you'll, as you'll know. Uh, we produce today about 12 gigawatts of green energy, 12, 13. We can increase that to 80 gigawatts by 2050, so we can actually produce four times as much energy as Scotland needs. Great, it exports it to us and we'll use it. We'll let you have it. <laughs> and we'll create 385,000 jobs. So there's a fantastic opportunity, but I want to make sure that we use that green energy to make sure that, firstly, people have got affordable energy, but secondly, to make sure there's an advantage for industry, for energy-intensive industries, so that we can attract the industries of the future. There's, there's a lot that we, can, that we can be positive about, but we've got to get on and do it. And is your sort of role as business ambassador, is that a sort of acceptance that perhaps on the business side, you know, the business community has been wary of independence, the whiskey industry in particular, certainly felt in the 2014 referendum that they couldn't be as vocal as they perhaps would have liked to have been in, in saying that they thought... Yeah, I think, I, think, I think things have kind of moved on a wee bit since then, but what, what I will do is that I, I will go and talk to them about what we're doing, how we can create the architecture for, for growth in an independent Scotland, but I'll listen to them as well. Uh, and I'll take that back to the, the First Minister and we'll make sure that we engage positively through that process. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. And also on whiskey, the main question is, what is the best? Ah, well, moods change, don't they? But if, if I had to choose my own personal one, um, there's, a, there's a little Speyside distillery, Milton Duff, and everybody is different. Some people like the, the sherry cask, some people like the, the heavy peaty ones, but a sherry cask from Milton Duff is just sublime. I don't know if people drink... I, I've been trying to get into whisky the last few years, I'll and the sherry I'll... cask ones are amazing. Yeah. They, t- they taste almost like... Pot, they're sort of sweeter. 
They are, yeah. Oh, man. Whisk- yeah. Do people here drink whiskey? You've heard of whiskey, right? <laughs> Talk about it like no one's ever had it before. It's, I mean, when you get into it... Do you know what? I've just, <laughs> I don't know why I'm going off on this. I went to a vineyard in Italy, and I thought, yeah. you know, when I go on holiday there, I'd go and sample the thing. So when I go to Scotland, why don't I visit distilleries? Yeah, yeah. So whenever I do the Edinburgh Festival now, I always go to a distillery afterwards. I did Edradour up in Perthshire. Yeah, did the famous grouse one. Yeah. Um, uh, Clyde's I did. And basically... Adding water to it or not depends on your own mouth. It does. So for some people, it makes it less palatable. And adding water to it or ice makes it less palatable for me. So when I have it neat, it tastes like brown sugar. Whiskey tastes sweet to me. And I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. How have I never realised that this thing tastes like Werther's Original? But it's... (laughs) But that it'll get you shit-faced. Good God. Yeah, but whiskey is very complex. And if you, for me, putting a bit of water in it, it releases that flavour. Yeah. I mean, people will take it however they want, whatever, whatever works for them. There's a danger with ice, because ice chills it. So yeah. it, it flattens some of the, the, the flavours that you would... You know, and it numbs your tongue as well, and you're not... It numbs the tongue, yeah. Man, whiskey's so good, isn't it? It's marvellous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's such a good thing. So then, um, let's just come back to your time as leader then, because that was... Mm. That was just such... Uh, that was a point at which everyone was watching politics on telly. In a way, it must have felt like being part of a soap opera. Yeah, it did, it did feel a bit like that, because you knew that you, you had to try and perform, so you had, to, you had to get yourself in the zone that you were ready for it when you went down at 12 o'clock on a, on a Wednesday afternoon. So I will admit, we did spend quite a bit of time preparing. We'd talk about ideas on a Tuesday. We'd meet at half past nine on a Wednesday morning. I used to sit and listen to music before I, before I went down, just to get myself in the right... Like classical, the Rocky soundtrack, um, gangster rap. Actually, this, this came up... Somebody else interviewed me at the, the, the Fringe uh, a, few, a few months ago, Matt, and this came up, and I, I just sort of threw out that, you know, I might listen to something like Meatloaf, so the headline in the press became Nat Out of Hell. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got, to, you've, got to, you've got to be careful with these things. But, I mean, but is it Meatloaf that you listen to? Well, I do listen to Meatloaf, but I also listen to the two female vocalists that he worked with, Ellen Foley and Carla DeVito. Okay. And I actually tweeted that I listened to Carla DeVito, and to my surprise, she actually followed me back, which was a, a, rather, a rather nice thing. But there, so and has she slid into your DMs? <laughs> no. <laughs> For goodness sake. <laughs> so a bit of music. Anything else? Did you have, like, a, a, a routine? Did you have any, like, superstitions, cufflinks? Tie, no, no, I wouldn't. Lucky um, pants? No, I, 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 I wouldn't. But, you know, for any of us in politics, you've obviously got your advisors and your, your press team. And certainly if I was doing any television question time or whatever, then my, my head of press, would, if he hadn't seen me, would phone me up and say, right, what tie have you got on? <laughs> and I had to, had to make sure it was the appropriate one. Well, were there ones that you... W- w- you got inappropriate ties? <laughs> Musical ones? Ah, you know, people can be funny, can't they? <laughs> And sit up straight. That's the other thing. <laughs> Don't slouch. <laughs> and how do you find that, as, as someone who's you know led effectively a party, your relationship with spin doctors and advice like that? Do you think, look, let me be me, or do you take on some of what they say? <laughs> yeah, that's a question. So um, I would actually have five people in the room when we were doing PMQ prep. Uh, so it was maybe quite a lot. So I had my chief of staff, my policy advisor, head of comms, head of digital. Who am I missing? Head of research. And, um, you know, we'd kick around ideas um, and I would listen to what they have to say. And um, quite often I'd say, no, this is what I want to do today. And they would try and, one or two of them, 
not mention any of their names, they'll try and argue with you. And then eventually one of the others would say, no, no, Ian's already told you twice. <laughs> We're not doing that. But the problem with that is, if you, if you go against your advisors, then you better be right. Because <laughs> if you come back up into the office and you've made a mess of it, then you really are in trouble. But actually, I will, I will tell you a wee story. We, I think I mentioned that we used to meet at 11 o'clock on a Tuesday morning. And uh, my, my, my previous head of staff, she's moved on to work with the United Nations. We were having a meeting up in Edinburgh. And I was, I was going to miss the, the 11 o'clock meeting the following Tuesday. And I said, look, the rest of you just have the meeting. And I said, you'll tell me what I'm thinking just as usual anyway. And she just nodded. And I said, you might, you might at least pretend <laughs> that, that, I, that I've got some say in this. <laughs> well, that's advisors, though. And the yeah. thing is, they don't have to do it. So they don't understand the pressure that elected yeah. politicians feel. Well, maybe in a way, but, but the one thing I will say in their defence is they are there to work for you and they're committed to giving you their, their best advice. So. There are a couple of... Um, obviously, you had so many big moments uh, at PMQ. Two in particular, under two different speakers. 2018 with John Burko. Ah. Where, so it, yeah. it, just because uh, I'm in danger of c conflating the two. So the first one, you walk out... Because no, I was thrown out. I was thrown out. Thrown out. Yeah. Yeah. So the first one you thrown out. Ceremoniously. And that was when Theresa May was Prime Minister. Yeah. And that was because... Uh, what was it because? Well, that was, because <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was the first power grab that we saw. So they were, they were passing the, the Single Market Act. And it went through very quickly on a Tuesday night. And I wasn't even called to speak in, in the third reading. And um, it was quite late on on a Tuesday night. I had three phone calls, Matt. Um, a guy called Mike Russell, who was the Scottish Brexit minister, quite a mild-mannered man, and he was, he was actually in Dublin that night, and he was ready to man the barricades. Nicola, and you asked about the relationship with Nicola, Nicola said to me, she says, Ian, you have to do something. Okay, fine, message received. And then my wife, if you don't do something, don't come home. The phone, the phone was slammed down. Oh, my God! So, so there, was a, there was a very clear message. So... Um, we met early on the Wednesday morning, we kicked around a few things, and we knew that there was this parliamentary procedure that I could move a motion that the House now sit in private. And the Speaker really had to take it, so it would have, it would have disrupted Prime Minister's questions. Now, my deputy had been to see the clerks and told them what we were going to do, so it wasn't, it wasn't a mystery to them. And um, actually, one of the funny sides of that is that I'm still kind of thinking through, and I hadn't actually really told our, our MPs uh, what, what, I, what I was doing and um, a couple of the senior ones got wind of it and came to see me and said oh, no, no, no. I think this is a really bad idea and um, my advisors were saying we think you should do it but you've got to make the call so I thought okay fine so I'm, I'm sitting on the bench and I'm still swaying about whether to do it or not the risks involved in it and I don't hear very well um, but Mary Black who was sitting two rows behind me is waving a phone in the air and she said Ian look at your phone and it was a message from the First Minister, go for it. So I quietly, <laughs> quietly put the phone back in my pocket and thought, fine, we'll do it. And um, I was amazed when, when the Speaker would not allow me to move the motion. And so I challenged his authority by refusing to sit down. Uh, and of course, he named me and uh, I, I walked out. So, but, the, but the thing about that is that it wasn't planned that the group followed me. And I'd come through the second set of doors in Westminster and I kind of heard this kerfuffle behind me and I looked round and I thought, the hell are they all doing? Because <laughs> they all came out with me. The, the annoying thing for some of them is we had five members on the order paper that day. One had never asked a Prime Minister's question and he certainly wasn't going to get it then. But we, we, we actually put 10,000 members on that day. Um, it was quite a big thing because we were seen to be standing up against Westminster. But one of the, one of the, one of the funny things about that actually... 
roll on to the next election. And I'm out campaigning in Portree, and there was a, a guy who was one of our campaign workers, he was American. He said, I want to introduce a friend to you. And he introduced this guy. And he said, um, I'm from Somerset. But that, that day when you got chucked out of Parliament, I decided I wanted to do two things. He said, I wanted to join the SNP and I wanted to come and live in Scotland. <laughs> and I'm looking at him going, what? <laughs> and he was, he was a wood turner. So he up sticks and left Somerset Literally. and came to live in Fife. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's... Because those, those sorts of moments, that's, that's, that could be high risk. That could yeah, backfire. It could have backfired, yeah. So when you're talking through Nicola Sturgeon, she's saying, look, you've got to get this right because... Well, we had, yeah, when we talked, I mean, I'd had the conversation the night before and I'd literally got the message, go for it. So she'd obviously been told what I was thinking of doing. And then in 2022, Lindsay Hoyle. Yeah. <laughs> what yeah. happened there? Yeah, well, you, you tell me. I mean, the thing, well, the thing was, the kind of backstory to that is this thing about you can't call somebody a liar in Parliament. Actually, can I go back a wee bit? I want yeah. to go back to one of the Berker ones, if I may. Because when we knew that Boris Johnson was going to become Prime Minister, there was a time that I stood up and I called, him, I called Boris Johnson a racist. And, of course, there was a right kerfuffle and the Tories were shouting at me and Berker asked me to withdraw and I gave two examples of why he was a racist. And he just kind of... He just carried on. And, um, fair point. Fair point. So I'd, I'd, I'd come out and my chief whip said to me, you better go and have a word, have a word with the speaker. So I went back and I said, Mr. Speaker, I wasn't trying to cause you any problem. And he looked at me and he said, he said, Ian, he said, on reflection, you're quite right. He said, my advice to you is keep buggering on. <laughs> so that I carte blanche to... So anyway, but you can't call somebody a liar in, in the House of Commons, you know, in, in, in normal business. But if you put down a motion and you have a substantive debate... So I did put down a motion about him being, a, frankly, a bloody liar. So how do you word that, then? What? Well, I'd have to look it up. I mean, it was... Um, can it include the word liar or not? Um, it was in... When was it? It wasn't that long before I got chucked out. But it, was a, it was a substantive motion. And, and I was allowed to lay out the case as to why this man was disreputable and not fit for purpose. Um, so when it came up, at, um, it wasn't Prime Minister's questions, it was another statement. And I'd, I'd called them a liar... And uh, it, the speaker kind of ignored it, and the Tories are in uproar, and they interjected and asked me to withdraw it. And I said, well, how can I possibly withdraw the comment that the Prime Minister is a liar when the whole world knows he's a liar? <laughs> so, and out of respect for Lindsay, at that point, I thought, well, look, I'll just... That's, that's when I did walk out, uh, because I thought, I'm not, I'm not going to give him the bother of having to name me and chase me out and all the rest of it. So out I went. Uh, it was a freezing cold day, and immediately you know, regretted it. Well, well, the thing is, you're not you're, you're not allowed on the parliamentary estate. Um, so you're oh, not so even allowed on the green. Oh my god! So of course I'm having to do interviews, and because we were still COVID regulations, I didn't have my staff with me that I would normally do, and I, I had my private secretary. But my phone's ringing and ringing and ringing, and I couldn't I couldn't take the calls. And eventually, I pulled this thing out, and as my chief whip. You've not been thrown out. You can come back in. <laughs> you should have seen the looks in the Tory MPs' faces. <laughs> so when something like that happens, do you then have to go and see the speaker? Do you, do you say, well, yeah. Ian, you know, I know what you're doing, right? I, get I totally get it, but, you know, in future, if you wouldn't mind, not walking out. Is that OK? I think that was more or less what Lindsay said to me. But, um, but, and I feel for him because he was actually getting emails that were saying, how dare you? Ian's standing up and telling the truth and... You're ruling them out of order, so... Yeah, one of those things. 
But it's, you know, leadership brings such pressure, doesn't it? And it's different, to, you know, there's one thing being an MP, there's one thing being a front bench, and another thing. Leadership is something specific in terms of the pressure that it puts on an individual. Yeah, but, but you've put yourself up for it. And under our system, I put myself up to be leader every year because I had to be re-elected every year. And yeah, you have to make sacrifices. So um, there, isn't, there isn't much downtime. But I, I, you know, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, and do you miss it? Um, yeah, there'll be moments. There'll be moments that you think that should have stayed on. But look, that decision was taken. I moved on. Um, I think some people decided that they would rather have somebody else on that front bench, and that's fine. That's their right to do that. And I've moved on. And you know, the fact that I've got this this job to do for the first minister, working with her and writing this green industrial strategy. I've got big things which are actually really important that otherwise I wouldn't have been able to do. But if you're doing something you enjoy and then it stops before you want to stop doing it, it well, must hurt a bit. Yeah, but, yeah, but I, you know, ultimately I took the decision. Uh, I didn't put myself forward for election. Um, and I certainly believe I have had put myself forward for election, then I would have won it. Okay, there would have been some people perhaps uh, would, have, would have opposed me. But, um, but I, I, I took that decision, Matt. And when it's, just trying to understand this from the outside, there are sort of cracks forming now in the SNP, which is entirely natural, this happens in all political parties, but until now, really, we haven't seen this cracks, sort of... Cracks, cracks. Factionalism. I'll tell you, I'll bury them. <laughs> <laughs> but we haven't seen that sort of factionalism with the SNP, really, in, in the modern era. And, and I guess, in a way, it's the, the sorts of pressures that other political parties go through are now starting to play out for yours. Yeah, you know, but you know, sometimes it's healthy to have a degree of debate. But as long as you can do that in in a constructive way, nobody should be nobody should be fearful about that. Um, we've we've got a conference coming up in in a few weeks' time, and it's it's an important one because it's going to determine whether or not we fight the next election or whether it's the Hollywood election on a on a de facto referendum. But I, I hope it's a good natured, respectful debate. Actually, I believe it will be. And we'll, we'll get to a settled position because that's what the that's what the SNP does. And just for those of us outside, is is it as simple as obviously we've seen so many of the parties go the Blairites and the Brownites, or you know the, the sort of uh, the, the One Nation group, you know the the Tory Party and its two European factions. Is it as simple as what's happening in the SNP at the moment is there's effectively a, a Sturgeonite faction and a Salmonite faction, and and they're the two that. No, are. no, it's not. It's not like that. I mean, Nicola's been been leader since 2014. She's she's very well respected. I don't think anybody um, would would want to see that change. I think there's there's very strong support for her. She certainly has my full support. Um, I mean, Alex Salmond is is part of the the history of the of the party. He's no longer with us. He's gone off and formed his his own party, Anapa. So that. Uh, that door is closed. I mean, it really is. It's a discussion. It's a tactical discussion about um, how we should fight for independence. That's that's really the issue. So, and that, but that will be resolved. Yes. So Stephen Flynn and Mary Black, the sort of current leadership of the Westminster Group. What's how do they differ from you on how you achieve it? Well, you would need to ask them. I mean, they're, they're different people. They're younger people. Um, but are have, they more impatient? Are they sort of? Um, you know, I don't, I don't detect that there's been a material change to the, the approach that they have. They'll have their own style, their own way of doing things. But the thing that unites all of us together is that we're all on the SNP because we want Scotland to be an independent country. But that can be, I mean, you know, political parties end up going to war with themselves far more than they would with their opponents. And I imagine that's something you're sort of keen to avoid. Yeah, absolutely. And I would encourage colleagues to come together. Um, this party has been around for a long time, since the 1930s. I've been a member of it, um, first joined way back in the 1970s. And I actually think that prize of independence is there in front of us. 
um, we've got to make sure that we we stay focused on the job that we've that we've got to do. And it must be hard when, obviously, for so long the unity was really unprecedented in modern British politics. You've never yeah. seen a party so unified, yeah. so disciplined, so on message. And now that's starting to change. What should we read into that as the public? Is that just time? Or is that because perhaps some of your colleagues feel that independence is slipping away? No, I don't think so, Matt. And I think actually if you look at the, the Scottish government, there's been a unity of purpose. You've got a, a cabinet that's united, the backbenchers that are fairly unified behind the, the, the party as well. You're always going to have the odd issue where you're going to have debate, and, and, and rightly so. But the party actually is pretty well uh, united. It's not the case that the party is split from top to bottom. You know, I had meetings with MSP colleagues uh, with, on my new brief over the last few weeks, and I expressed when I was at a Zoom meeting that it was like a, a meeting of old friends. And that's, that's like exactly what it is with, with most of us. Very rare in politics. But um, obviously one thing, and I've really detected this, and, and as you know, I perform a lot in Scotland and, and mm. to mixed political crowds, and one thing that's really struck me since independence actually was how much people could laugh at themselves as yep. well as laughing at others and things like that. In the last couple of years, the change to the rules on gender and self-ID have done something to the body politic in Scotland that I've never seen before. And you must be far closer to this than I am. I mean, it feels like it's going to tear, not just the SNP apart, but, but just politics in Scotland is mm. far more volatile now as a result of that. Do you think there are things that the Scottish government should have done differently? Let's, let's put this in the... In a broader context, if I think about how Scotland's changed since since devolution, it's remarkable. I mean, it used to be, if I say so myself, there was an element of a kind of greyness, a dourness, a dullness that would have would have been there in the in the past, and I hope that's changed. And 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 you look at what's happened in terms of gay rights, lesbians, uh, same-sex marriage, and so on and so forth. My goodness, like so many other countries, we've been on a tremendous journey. And I think about making sure that trans people have a respectful way that they can declare their identity is absolutely the, the right thing to do. And of course, in amongst all of that, we've got to make sure that we're protecting women's rights as well. Um, and I think what we've seen is, is we've seen a fair bit of noise over the course of the, the last while around this issue. We've got to make sure it remains measured, it remains calm. There's obviously been the issue about the... Uh, the two prisoners, uh, one in particular, the, the, the case recently about the rapist going to a women's prison. And let's be absolutely clear, that can't, that must not happen. Anyone that's guilty of those kind of offences cannot be near uh, women in, in a prison. So, look, I think there are lessons that have to be learned from that. But the important thing about that, Matt, is that that's not the legislation which has just gone through the Scottish Parliament. That's the existing legislation that we're talking, talking about. So I, I think, really, we've got to do two things. Let's make sure that we respect the rights of trans people. I think they've been absolutely... Uh, vilified in many cases over the course of the, the last few years, and we must make sure that they're given every right and protection that they deserve, but at the same time to make sure that we protect women's rights as well. There's a way of doing that. But, you know, in amongst all of this, there's something quite remarkable that's happening as well, because there's been a lot of talk on, on this issue, and I get that, I understand it's important. But in amongst all of this as well, what you've got is an attack on democracy, an attack on the, the Scottish Parliament, because the Secretary of State for Scotland has used this the Section 35, which I guess most people didn't even know about existing in the legislation, which means that he can strike down at any time he wants 
any bill of the Scottish Parliament. So forget for a minute this is to do with trans, it could be anything, that the Secretary of State representing the Conservative Party, a party that's lost every election in Scotland since 1955, can say that he is not putting forward a bill for royal assent. And that's pretty extraordinary. And that's something that we have to have a debate about in Scotland. And, you know, we talked about the, me getting thrown out of Parliament, what happened with the Withdrawal Act, but everything, everything that we've seen since then, the UK Single Market Act, what's happening with the EU Law Bill, for example, um, all of these things affect the powers of the Scottish Parliament. And all of these things happen... Let's remember that when people voted for a Scottish Parliament in a referendum on the basis of the Scotland Bill and the powers that were there and they're now being chipped away. And within all of that, there was something, I know it sounds a bit, it sounds a bit boring and technical, but there's something called the Sewell Convention. So if Westminster legislates on matters that are devolved, they need the consent of the Scottish Parliament. But what happened over Brexit is that Westminster began to say, well, we don't need Sewell to work because these, these times are not normal. Now, where's the respect agenda and all of that? So there's real concern about the relationship between Westminster and Scotland as as part of what is going on with this whole debate over uh, rights for trans people to self-identify. But do you think the issue's been badly handled by the Scottish Government? I mean, it, just things like the vote itself, should it, should it not just have been a conscience vote rather than a whipped vote? Well, look, I think, I think that's a good question. But, I mean, again, for, for your audience here, what happened in that Parliament, that there was a decisive vote for the bill, and you had SNP MPs, Labour MPs, Green MPs, Lib Dem MPs, even some Tories that, that voted for it. And for most of these parties, it was a manifesto commitment. So anybody that was standing for the SNP to the Scottish Parliament 2021 knew that they were standing on a manifesto commitment that we were going to bring this bill in. It's actually been debated, it's been consulted on for six years. And actually, you'll probably remember that Theresa May was talking about doing the same thing in England. And there are countless countries around the world who have done exactly the same as what the Scottish Government has done. We should be proud of the fact that, that I think the Minister in this case, somebody I know very well, Shona Robertson, I think has actually taken this bill through Parliament in, I think, a, a very professional manner. But just because other parties would have done it, other parts of the world have done it, doesn't mean it is the right thing to do. I mean, the backlash has been profound to it including inside your own party with, with leading people like Joanna Cherry being very outspoken yeah, and I, her opposition to it and someone who's been involved in Stonewall in lesbian rights and, and I respect, her lived experience. I, mean, I, mean, I think it's important. Does it make you question if it's the right thing? It is, it is absolutely the, 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 the right thing to do. I mean, look, at the end of the day, what was this all about? This was about making sure that, that those that are making that transition to, to, uh, to become trans people have got the right to self-ID, not to go through a medical process. Who in the right mind thinks it's right that people should go through a medical process? Well, isn't it more that people who also care about the rights of trans people think that the state should fully counsel people and, and give them as much help as possible to come to the correct decision that suits them without making it easier to make a decision at a young age? I think... Are, are you effectively removing a level of safeguarding? I think at the end of the day, it's important that there's all kind of health support for all individuals right across society, that there's proper mental health support. But, but trans people shouldn't be put in a different category to anyone else that needs support. I think that's the point. There has to be fairness, there has to be equality. And that's what we're seeking to 
uh, achieve with, with this bill. There's a feeling, isn't there, amongst some people, like Joanna Cherry and others, that actually this is eroding women's rights. I mean, do you, do you think enough consideration has been given to the rights of women and, and places where only women should be? I, I, I think it's really important that we, that we listen to people. And, um, you know, I, I absolutely concede that what has happened with the the individual, the rapist, that, that was originally got, went to court and veil, but in isolation, that shouldn't have happened. And, of course, that's been stopped. It's important that these lessons are learned. But the point, Matt, about that is that's on the existing legislation. Of course, safeguards have to be there. It's right that we, that we do this. Um, we need to have a respectful debate on these things, but what we can't have is Westminster bullying the Scottish Parliament that's entitled to make these decisions on behalf of the electorate in Scotland. Well, you might have people in Scotland who are independent supporters saying, thank God Westminster's intervened, because on this, actually, I disagree with the First Minister. Well, but at the end of the day, you had the SNP, the Labour Party, the Lib Dems, the Greens, all had manifesto commitments in the last election of bringing in this, this legislation. Cross-party support but for it. What people vote on and what's in manifestos can be two very different things, and public oh. opinion does seem to be not in tandem with, with the but Scottish... But if you go back to the beginnings of the Scottish Parliament, um, I mean, you might remember, we had a big debate about Section 28. Nobody now questions that. Nobody questions that we should have broad equality. That's what we're trying to do here. Isn't there a danger that they are two actually very different debates? Um, no, and look, I think, you know, when you get down to the detail of this, and you've talked about making sure that women's rights are protected... Um, and, and, and I think there are lots of areas that we have to be careful and that we do that with consent. And women don't fear fear. Women must be protected. Let's be absolutely clear about that. And that's why it's not right that he, someone that has abused women um, that has become a trans can go into to, to a women's jail. And, and that's obviously been dealt with over the course of the, the last couple of weeks. So let's make sure that we get this to the right places. I'm sure we will. It's put a, a huge amount of pressure on the First Minister. I mean, obviously, there's constant pressure on anyone who leads the government, but it does feel, really, for the first time, that there's a sort of sustained political pressure that Nicola Sturgeon is having to withstand. I mean, do you get a sense that she's affected by it or it would sort of hasten her departure in any way? No, not at all. I mean, I know how committed uh, Nicola is, and, and, of course, this is a, an issue that she's wanted to take ownership of, working with her ministerial team, working with... Shona Robinson, and I think that's what she's been doing. But you know, look, these, these are very difficult, they are very, very challenging issues, but it's an issue that, of course, the First Minister is also very passionate about. Do you think she's been surprised by the reaction to it? Um, look, I think it's something which clearly has, has dominated the, the airwaves over the course of the, the last few weeks, and it's been impassioned. Actually, I was listening to a radio programme on Radio Scotland this morning, a forum programme, and it was a very measured debate. So I think it's beginning to get to a better place, quite frankly. I think most people are reasonable on any debate that's yep. happening, aren't they? You know, we should always remember that. And even, even, the, even the harshest uh, debates we've had as a, you know, as, a, as a society, on the whole, most people are very, very respectful and are very keen yep. to be uh, respectful about it. I mean, uh, just think about some of the other debates we've had there. You know, you think of Brexit and things like that. I mean... Mm. Does that, is Brexit another thing that, because I, maybe I'm too political and I get obsessed about these things and I think, well, you know, on the face of it, Brexit really helps the case for independence because people in Scotland voted to remain mm. and it changes the deal and there's a level of outrage there and all the rest of it. On the other hand, is it also a risk that people go, actually, you know, you vote to leave these things and it goes on and on and on, it doesn't resolve it, it's a nightmare, best leave alone. I think there is a, there's, 
for a lot of us, I'm going to speak for myself, there's a tremendous sense of loss. Um, I, I see myself as European. I worked in Europe. My son worked in Europe. I mean, all the things we've benefited from over the last 50 years, the freedom of movement, the rights to get an education in Europe and so on. Actually, Erasmus, Erasmus taught James V, uh, funnily enough, if you go back far enough. So, no, I think these things, these things are important, and I'm desperate to get back to us being a, a European country again as we as we will. It's important, it's personal, it feels personal. And do you get any sense that, I mean, obviously there's a, a, a large amount of people, perhaps a large minority if you take the UK as a whole, would say, well, we could at least rejoin the single market. At the very least, the UK re rejoin the single market. Yeah. Do you have any hope that we might get to that point? Well, the question is, who's arguing for that? We, we are. And, and, and actually, I mean, you're right about not going backwards, but if I do for a second just reflect on what happened in that parliament between 2017 and 19, I do regret that those that wanted to reach some kind of accommodation that we became too fractured, because I think there was an argument that if we stayed in the single market and the customs union, it would have been the least worst option. Um, but of course, what then happened was the People's Vote campaign took off. And I mean, we were, we were happy to support it. It was the right thing to do. But I, I recognised that it was blunting the ability for us to push the single market customs union. And my big, big regret, Matt, if I'm honest, is that I felt in Parliament there was a majority for single market customs union. But because we split, it became, it became difficult to pull that together. And sad to say, I think we're all paying a, a massive price economically for that today. And, and of course, it's very much at the, the root of the trouble with the Northern Ireland Protocol. And with, with Theresa May's deal, <laughs> go back over all this, but yeah. actually, was Theresa May's deal objectively better than what we've got now? Um, in essence, probably yes. I mean, I'm not sure that Boris actually understood what he was trying to do because he's, 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 left, he's left us, I'm going to use a Gaelic word, he's left us with a right burach, isn't he? And what uh, does that mean? Uh, uh, it's a mess. <laughs> it's the sort of word it sounds it's, like he would use. It's a good, yeah, no, it's, well, no, he wouldn't use a Gaelic word, he wouldn't understand it. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, he's, he's left us with a, with a, a right mess. Uh, and, and, and just in terms then of, of, sort of Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak, do you get the sense that Boris Johnson was a huge recruiting sergeant for the SNP, that as long as he was there, you could say to the people of Scotland, I mean, look at the state of England, look at the state of the UK. Is Rishi Sunak distinct from that? Do, do people broadly yeah, feel the same? But, or is, you know, is, but, do but, people but sort on, of go, I quite like him? Yeah, but on, but on the principle of that, though, Matt, I mean, a lot of journalists in particular would say to me, you must want Boris to continue. And I'd look at them and say, no, I don't. I want, I want him gone. But I always took the view that people wouldn't vote for Scottish independence because of Boris Johnson. They'll vote for Scottish independence because they're confident about the kind of society that we can, that we can create. Rishi, you know, he's... <laughs> yeah, I know. He's not Boris Johnson, thank God. But he's... Um, he's different to... To most of us, and you know what I mean. What I mean. What I mean by that. Stop laughing. What I mean by that is that there's there's a naivety because he just doesn't understand what it's like. And you you think about what's going on at the moment with the NHS. I mean, anybody else would have recognised that they have to try and reach an accommodation, but he just he just doesn't get it. I'm going to tell you. Can I tell you another quick wee story? Absolutely. So when when we went into lockdown. And we brought in the job retention scheme. Um, I don't know if you remember that the cut-off date was the 19th of March. Fine. Now, the problem is, in my constituency, a lot of people work seasonally. 
They worked from Easter till October. Some of them had started work, a lot of them had job offers, but you had to be on the payroll system on the 19th of March. Now, bless him, he phoned me up at half past 10 on a Tuesday night, and we had this conversation. And um, it was respectful, but robust. And he said to me, he said, I know what you're arguing about. He said, if they're not going to be in the job retention scheme, they can get universal credit. And I said, Rishi, are you for real? And the point is he doesn't understand. That's the issue. Because he looked, he looked quite pleased to see you on Wednesday. There, there, was, a, there was a kind of warmth <laughs> between the two of you that looked genuine yeah, but, on the cameras. Yeah, but, well, look, at least I can have a conversation with him. We, we, can, we, can, we can disagree, but at least I can have a conversation with him. One of the things I went to him on last year, I mean, I'm passionate about green energy, madly against nuclear power. We don't need it. And I'll, I'll give him an alternative. It's called Tidal. And there was a great Royal Society report in 2021 that uh, said that we could get to 11.5 gigawatts of energy from Tidal. So in other words, we could get to the 15% base load that we're talking about from nuclear, and ultimately cheaper. And I, and I wanted him to put 50 million quid into a ring fence pot. And, and to be fair to him, he did say to me that he didn't particularly understand it, but he'd get some of his advisors to speak with me. And, and they put 20 million of a pot in. Actually, they did it the day before I was going to get a debate, and somebody did tell me they only, they only did that to shut you up, but they, which just sounds bizarre. But, but the thing is, we're blunting our ability to get to where we need to get to because they won't take it seriously. That's the... That's the point. But isn't there part of you that goes, well, actually, you know, Keir Starmer says he wants a fairer, greener future. He, he uses similar language to you. If you get a Labour government in Westminster, maybe you will get the sort of change you want. Well, you know, the difference between me and Keir is I published a 70-page report on this a few months ago. Keir just kind of gives you the, gives you the highlight. <laughs> I'll give you the detail, and we'll get on and do it while we're still waiting on Labour talking about it. But don't you think, isn't that a problem in a way, though, electorally for you, is that people in Scotland go, actually, we can have a Labour government, and they probably will do more on green energy. They, they sense that Keir Starmer probably would, probably correctly, care more about the environment than, say, Boris Johnson. I think... I think the ship has sailed because those that used to vote Labour... Using that wind power. Yeah, yeah, using that wind power. They've moved on. And, you know, one of the things that, that Keir's expressing is that um, he's not going to change anything in terms of the relationship with Europe, that we're not going back into the single market and the customs union. Well, actually, that's not where the public in Scotland are. But... There is a sense, isn't there? Isn't there just sort of a natural fatigue that's part of the human condition, is that people go... I mean, I wish we hadn't lost, and it pisses me off that we're not, but we did lose. We do have to talk about something else. That in the end. Ah, oh, for goodness sake. <laughs> <if, laughs> no, I'm not saying if, that. I necessarily if, think if, that. If Robert the Bruce thought that, we'd never win a win at Bannockburn. You know what I mean is that people go, oh, God, you know, we've got COVID now and Ukraine since then. Like, there's a sense that but that's people why, just naturally move on. Yeah, of course they do. But that's why the, the task that we have and the task that we must rise to is that we have to inspire people that we can do better. I want to create these green industrial jobs. I want to see the highlands being full of people. I want to see people starting growing families. I want to see people come to Scotland to be part of that story. So there'll be a real vision that we'll deliver of hope. And let's say, let's say Scotland, you get a referendum and you win it. Scotland becomes independent, whenever that is. join us. Well, I, I, I love Scotland, as you know, and that's why I find it so distressing, the thought that you know, these two old friends would be, would be torn apart. But um, 
Would you still pop down? Would you still, what, would you still go to London, or do you think, I'd oh, be great to never have to go there ever again? No, because, I mean, I've spent a lot of time here. I used to work down here at one point. And I mean, I walked, I walked up to the theatre tonight from, from the House of Commons, and I haven't walked up this way for a long time. I would walk past a pub and think, I remember going in there, and I remember going in that pub, and that's the pub that the Hearts fans used to go into. <laughs> and, you know, fantastic. So there's lots to... Um, by the way, I'm not saying that life is all about going to the pub. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, I'm only using that as an example. Now, there's much to enjoy and, and love about this place. So I'll set some questions from the audience now. Uh, so we'll, uh, if I can ask for one-sentence questions and one-sentence answers, we'll get around a few, indicate clearly, and I shall come to you. Uh, yes, the gentleman down here. And I have to repeat the questions, sorry, because I, I don't have a roving mic. Um, in the next election, would a Labour Party or Conservative victory be a thing to get independence over the line? OK, so the next election, uh, would a Labour victory or a Tory victory be better for getting independence over well, the line? Well, you know, I would, I would say to who... I mean, I don't want a Tory government, let me, let me make that clear. But I would say to whoever's in government, respect democracy and respect the rights of people of Scotland to be able to choose their own future. But do you think one is preferable? Do you think actually having the Tories there makes it a bit easier because if Labour are there, people in Scotland like them a bit more? Look, at the end of the day, both Labour and Tory have said that Scotland's not getting a referendum, which is um, a bit of a strange thing to say to people. You can vote for it as much as you like, but we're not going to let you have it. Um, Some people like being talked to like that, though, don't they? <laughs> Did they really? Oh, power, I don't, know sort of, yeah. I don't know what sort of people you talk to. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe... Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess it's... The, maybe people aren't that... This is part of the problem, isn't it? Is that just the interest wanes and then other issues hop up that league? Yeah, but that comes back to what I was saying earlier about if you're going to have a debate about process, well, it's not going to engage people. But if you have a real debate about how you're going to change people's lives, then that's different. That's the way to do it. Okay. Uh, if we could indicate clearly. Yes, uh, the woman in the middle there. Oh, yeah, so if you get independence and then join the EU, will Britain then become like Northern Ireland? Will you partition Britain? No, 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 no. No, I'm not, I'm not into boundaries and, and, and things like that. And, I mean, I'm really hoping that there's a resolution to the, the Northern Ireland situation with the, the protocol, and that will give you the template as to, as to what we can achieve. But, I mean, yeah, but, I mean, obviously, in a way, Ireland looms large in all of our minds, doesn't it? You think, well, hang on, are we going to... Would Scotland? Would we then have a hard border if England's out of the EU and Scotland's in it? Well, why would you have a hard border? Because you can use technology. There are ways of. I mean, again, um, you, and I appreciate you need two sides to to tangle in all of this. But let's let's actually have an adult conversation about these things. I know, but the problem is, <laughs> people worry we won't. Yeah, look. If Isn't we, there a danger that you sort of go, no, it'll all be fine, but we've seen how it goes and people go, all right. Well, let's, 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 let's take the example of, of what's happened with Ireland and the UK uh, since Irish independence. So there's a very close relationship between the two countries. You've got the common travel uh, area. Um, actually, Ireland's prospered, particularly over the course of the last few decades. But interestingly, because, you know, in a sense, I think these things allude to trade. But if you went back to the 1940s, 91% of Ireland's trade was with the UK. It's now less than 10%. But in every year since 1948, the value of Irish exports to the UK has increased. So what Ireland has done is been able to internationalise, it's been able to globalise, but the UK has remained important, but perhaps on a relative basis less so. But, but there's a very strong relationship between these two independent countries. 
And is, is Ireland a model you'd want to copy, sort of low-tax, socially conservative place? Uh, no. I mean, look, every country has to play to its own strengths. But one of the things which I think is interesting, there's, there's an economist by the name of David Skilling, I would say he's the leading economist at small countries around the world. Small countries tend to do better than large countries. Funnily enough, there are no economies of scale for large countries. So, but every country will have its own USP. We've got this thing that I keep coming going on about, about green energy, but that's an, it's a massive opportunity for us to be able to attract the industries that will be able to use that energy. Data centres, just to give you a very easy, easy example. So you have to play to your strengths and you have to sell yourself to the world. But it doesn't matter if you look at countries that have been independent for a long time um, or you look at countries, the Baltics, for example, but you can look at other parts of the world but they all recognise that they've got to they've got to pay their way in, in the world. But the, re, but the reason that you want to deliver growth is because you want to deliver fairness. You want to make sure that you, you eradicate poverty, that you've got health and education systems that you, can, that you can be proud of. There's a lot of work to do. I'm not suggesting for one minute that there isn't. But I want better outcomes, and it's a question about how you do that. OK, one more question for Ian. Yes, uh, the woman in the middle. Oh yeah, if you were still SNP Westminster leader when the, uh, when the UK government intervened on the Gender Recognition Act self-ID, what speech would you have given? Um, well, I actually, there was a statement, um, and, I, and I spoke um, in, in that statement. And, um, I mean, I've expressed that I, I support the bill, but um, you've got that as one issue, but the other issue is the democratic issue of Westminster trampling all over Scottish democracy. Um, and I think that's an important point that we have to make alongside that. And have any of your members talked to you about it? They said, Ian, this is going to be a bit too fast, too far, you know, on the gender thing. In, in Westminster? No. But well, local members? Um, no. Um, no, I haven't had any of my members in, in Sky, that's my local branch, that have expressed any, any reservations about this. We actually, in, in my constituency, we actually do have a, a trans woman that's a councillor that we're very, very proud of. So we've kind of, we've been through all of this, um, if, if, I, if I may put it that way. So. Okay, one final question before we let Ian go. Ian, what is more likely in the next 30 years? Scotland becomes an independent country or Hibs win the Premier League? Ah, well, I'm afraid that's an easy one. It's Scotland becoming independent. <laughs> but at least, you know, one of the things I know, people follow Scottish football is that it became a running sore that when Hibs have won the league, although not since the 50s, but they hadn't won, they hadn't won the Scottish Cup since 1902. But we won it in 2016 when we beat Rangers 3-2, our last-minute winner. And my goodness, that was a... That was a joyous occasion. That, I mean, I don't know how many people in the room follow Scottish football, but the, the semi-final when Rangers beat Celtic and then the final when you beat Rangers to the best football games I've yeah. that, that Scottish Cup season was incredible. So I, much fun. Do you know one of the worst things I had to do, though? Because there, there was a, used to be a programme on Radio Scotland, Shireen. It was a news magazine programme. It's now on a Saturday. It used to be on a Sunday. And Shireen Nanjiani, she used to have guests via rotations. I used to be on it every four weeks. And I did it the day after Hibs played Hearts in the Scottish Cup final. And I got into the studio and the producer looked at me and said, right, newspaper review, we're going to have to start on the Scottish Cup final and you're doing it. I said, you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> OK, we're going to have to end on a different new question now. Different last question. What's more likely in the next 30 years? Scotland becomes an independent country or Scotland qualifies for a World Cup? 
Oh. <laughs> oh. Oh, you're a cruel man. That was man. too much even for an English cruel, audience. That was too harsh. You're a cruel man. You know, the, the, when these festivals of football are just tremendous, aren't they? Can I not have both? Can I not dream? Can I not dream? And, yeah. You know, I've been to see Scotland in the World Cup. I tell you what, I went to Paris in 98 for the yes. opening game of the World Cup, Scotland against Brazil. Brazil. And we were drawing one each at halftime. Man. I know. It's just one of these things. That, I mean, you, you dream of winning the World Cup. Yeah. We just dream of qualifying. <laughs> <laughs> and you dream of us not winning it. <laughs> no, no, no. I wouldn't grudge you that. I mean, I mean you won it in 66, then we beat you in 67. So... <laughs> <laughs> Ian, this has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. So thank you all for coming tonight. You've been a wonderful audience. Let's end by thanking tonight's guest, Ian Blackford. Thank you. Well, there you go, Ian Blackford. It'd be fascinating to see what Ian does next and what the future holds, really, for major players like him. Uh, and and uh, he hinted at it there about the SNP. Obviously, they've said that the next election will be a de facto referendum on uh, independence, but they've still got to make their mind up on whether that means the general election or the Holyrood election. But it does feel like they'd already said it was the general election. So there's a load more drama and a load more decisions to come. Um, and uh, a lot of that, of course... Uh, it almost seems to be personally tied up with the with the fate of the first minister there. But fascinating to talk to Ian about what it's like from his perspective doing things like prime minister's questions in an arena and in a effectively in an institution, let alone a union that uh, the SNP rather not be part of. Um, but how you can still be um, how, how you can still try and sort of use the tools at your disposal, uh, even in that context. And anything about the way different prime ministers deal with. Um, opposition parties i just find absolutely fascinating and of course my next guest is the leader of the opposition keir starmer and that is on monday the 20th of february and that will be a very special night as i said at the start tickets for that have gone but always check the nymax website because occasionally on the day people can't go or whatever and, and the occasional ticket pops up then it's eddie izzard then it's christian guru murthy then it's ruth davidson then it's a whole load more about to be announced so Thank you so much for downloading this. Please leave a five-star written review. It helps get the podcast up the charts. Tell your friends about it, and I'll see you soon. Ta-ra!